Good morning, Placerita. This morning, Pastor Adam sent me a text. He said, please tell the folks I love them, I'm anxious to be back home, and I'll see them soon. He's looking forward to being back here and filling the pulpit again. Thank you for praying for him. Uh, Over this uh, past two weeks, he's not only been teaching and preaching, but on one day, they had six weddings. Not all at one time. Six consecutive weddings in one day. That's a long day, a very full day. So he's not been on vacation, in case you're wondering. He's been laboring in the vineyard out there and has been doing great work. Part of that, he's battled through illness. And uh, about a week ago, he was not feeling so well. But the Lord gave him the strength to finish, to finish well. And as Pastor Steve said, he will soon be on his way back to us. So come again and, and see him here in this pulpit. Return to continue preaching in the Word. As we come together this morning, today is the day, of the Sunday of the week, the Sunday of the month that we observe the Lord's table. We also call it the Lord's Supper. We also refer to it as communion. And as we're talking about that and thinking about that, I thought it would be a good thing just to take the sermon this morning as time for us to just really learn what the Lord's table is all about. I want to start with a story of a man that I'll tie into this in just a second. When Columbus came to America in 1492, this man was 12 years of age. And as a young boy, he had absolutely no idea what God would have in store for him. He would not realize that he would live a relatively short life, that he would be burned at the stake at the age of 48 for his views. His name was Balthazar Hubmeier. Balthazar was born in Friedberg, Bavaria, in Germany in 1480. 500 years ago this year, he started preaching. And his first preaching assignment was as a pastor of a Roman Catholic church in Regensburg, Germany, whom you, that place you may know as Radisbon, Germany. At that time, being a Roman Catholic priest, he had an unusual drive and desire that was very similar to Martin Luther's. And that was he wanted to know what the Bible said. And he searched the scriptures, studied the scriptures. He wanted to be a man of the word. He wanted to preach the word. He wanted to teach the word. Above all else, he wanted to live the word of God. And through that, he went through a process of understanding that the scriptures teach very clearly that salvation is by faith, not by works. That salvation is by faith alone, in Christ alone. As he came to that realization, there came a time in his life when he had to make a public declaration. By then, he was already preaching the gospel fully and had left the Roman Catholic Church, but still, there was a need for him to be obedient to the Lord, obedient to the Lord in believers' baptism. So on Saturday, April 15th, which happens also to fall on a Saturday this month, And it is also the Saturday before, the day before Easter Sunday, which is April 16th. It was April 16th then also in 1525. Balthazar Hubmeier was baptized 
with 60 other believers at Waldshut in Germany. The next morning, he took the pulpit again with renewed vigor that he was obedient to the Lord and what he had become convinced was the, what the scriptures required, that a believer must be baptized to give public declaration of his faith in Jesus Christ. Unlike the Roman Catholic Church baptized infants without faith, he believed that that needed to be given up. And he believed that it was only believers that should be baptized. And as a step of obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ to give public declaration. Baptism did not save. Baptism did not convey any grace. And he began to write about that and to defend it. He became the very most vocal and most prolific defender of baptism of believers and of the symbolic and memorial view of the Lord's Supper. We believe as we come today that the elements of the Lord's table, the bread and the juice of the grape, are symbolic. The Roman Catholic Church teaches transubstantiation. The bread and the wine become the actual body and blood of Jesus Christ. The Lutheran Church, Martin Luther, taught that it's consubstantiation. It doesn't become the actual body and blood of Christ, but the actual body and blood of Christ are present with the bread and the wine. But we teach the memorial view of the Lord's table, that the elements are only symbolic of the body and blood of Christ. Balthazar Hubmeyer believed that too. And he taught that. And he spent his life defending those two ordinances for the church. He wrote some of the most detailed defenses going into the scriptures. He conducted debates. He, he uh, uh, had conferences on this. And eventually, he was burned at the stake for his views. Even Luther had turned against him because he disagreed with Luther on the Lord's table. Even Ulrich Zwingli had turned against him because Ulrich Zwingli went back to infant baptism and also held that the body and blood of Christ were present in the Lord's table. Zwingli himself tried Balthazar Hubmeier and eventually he was sentenced to death, burned at the stake in 1528 at the age of 48. So now you know the rest of the story about Balthazar Hubmeier. Why would a man like that give his life for the principles and teachings of Scripture about baptism on the Lord's table? I think you and I today don't rightly understand fully what the Scriptures teach about the Lord's table. And so that's why we're going to take the time this morning to look at that. You see, the church has two ordinances, baptism and the Lord's Supper. Baptism consists of the declaration of one's salvation, of being in Christ Jesus by faith. We could say it this way. Baptism symbolizes our commitment of faith, and the Lord's Supper symbolizes our obligation to brotherly love and to the one another's that we have in the New Testament. Or we could say it this way, baptism is our Godward obedience and the Lord's Supper is our brotherward obedience. You say, that sounds strange. I thought the Lord's Supper was to focus on Christ. 
It's, it's symbolizing his body, his blood, his sacrifice, isn't it? How is this brotherward? How is this toward the fellow believers? You see, when Balthazar Hubmeyer was baptized, he understood that baptism was an act of obedience to Christ to give public declaration of one's faith in Christ. But it also placed him under the authority of the church and a commitment to his brothers and sisters in Christ to maintain his purity. And he, theirs. It was a mutual, agreed act. In other words, he submitted himself to potential church discipline if he would sin against a brother or sister in Christ. And if that action were necessary, he would submit himself to it so that he might be restored to their fellowship. So what does the Lord's Supper declare? Is it only about the Lord's death? Or his substitutionary sacrifice? Is it about self-examination to make certain whether or not we have sinned against our Savior? Is it about the Lord's future return? Is it about the unity of the body of Christ the church? What is it? Let's pray and then I'll lay out for us the three major points of this message going forward. Father, we thank you and praise you for this time we have together to come to your word, to do like Balthazar Hubmeyer did, to study your word, to see what it says, and today to focus upon the Lord's Supper, about why we observe it, what's the necessity of it, what does it mean. Guide us in this time that we spend together, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Three points in the message this morning. First of all, I want to talk about how communion reveals the full program of redemption. Every aspect of God's program of redemption for us is revealed in communion or the Lord's Supper. Secondly, we want to look at the future kingdom of Christ and how it's related to our Savior's institution of the Lord's Supper and then thirdly, we want to sum it up by looking at the multiple messages of the communion. Now, there in your bulletin is an outline that you can follow and you can take notes on. So the first point, the full program of redemption in the communion or in the Lord's Supper. For that, I want you to turn, if you would, to Matthew chapter 26, because we're going to look at that and see what it has to say. You see, the Lord's Supper is instituted by Christ at the Last Supper there in the upper room in Jerusalem. And three of the Gospels give us a full account of what he said and how he instituted the Lord's Supper. Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Pastor Steve read for us this morning the Gospel of Luke's presentation in Luke chapter 22. Let's look at Matthew chapter 26, verses 26 through 29, and see what it has to say about the institution of the Lord's Supper. Beginning at verse 26 of Matthew 26. Now, as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you. 
For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. So let's notice several things here. First of all, when we're talking about the full program of redemption, how does it begin? It begins with God appointing the Son to come and to take upon himself human flesh. So the first point we have here is that communion requires Christ's incarnation. When we take that bread and we see the words of Christ when he says, this is my body, what does that require? That requires for him to have a body. And when he takes the cup and he says, this is my blood, the blood of the new covenant, what does that require? It requires he have a body that has blood in it. We cannot observe communion unless Jesus Christ first came and came as a man and died on the cross and shed his blood at Calvary for us. You see, that's where we begin, the incarnation. When we observe the Lord's table, we are saying we believe he came. We believe that he was born of the Virgin Mary, that he was conceived in her womb by a miracle of the Holy Spirit. And that being a sinless man, yet he took upon himself our flesh, human flesh, and lived among us and walked among us. And eventually, in following the Father's will, he was crucified at Calvary and died there, shed his blood as our substitutionary sacrifice. That requires a body. Before he can be killed on the cross, it requires a body. So communion requires Christ's incarnation. The second thing about communion is that demands Christ's substitutionary sacrifice. In Luke chapter 22, as Pastor Steve was reading it this morning, notice in verse 19 that when Jesus took the bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them and he said, this is my body which is given for you. Notice those two little words, for you, for you, for me. It's substitutionary. He died in our place. The wages of sin is death. We deserve death. But he provides us the gift of life because he dies as our sacrifice. For you. As we partake of the Lord's table this morning, as you're holding that bit of wafer or bread in your fingers. And you think about it representing, about it being symbolic, a memorial of Christ's body. Remember, he came. He was born of the Virgin Mary. He lived, he taught, and he died for you. Now, as believers, we look at that and we may fully understand it, but if there's someone here this morning who says, but wait a minute, you know, I'm just visiting and I, I've never, I, I've not heard about this before and I've never heard about Jesus this way. Uh, if you're sitting there this morning and you're someone like that and the elements come by, feel free to let them pass by. But as they pass by, do look at them and think of this. We're told by Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, that Christ has reconciled the entire world to himself. By the entire world, that means the whole world. 
But then he sends forth ambassadors, believers, to preach a gospel. And that gospel does what? It says we are to beseech them to be reconciled. Now, how can that be? He's, they've already been reconciled. The whole world's already reconciled through the death of Christ, and then we are beseeching them to be reconciled? You see, there, there are two different words being used for reconciliation there. The first reconciliation is a temporary reconciliation that is provided for every man, woman, and child, regardless of what they believe about Jesus Christ. What does it do? It temporarily reconciles them so that God's judgment doesn't immediately fall and their lives immediately taken. If you're an unbeliever this morning, why has God allowed you to live so long when the wages of sin is death? Why doesn't he judge you? Because Christ died to make certain that you would have the opportunity to hear the gospel. Christ purchased you and you are owned by him. Christ has propitiated God on your behalf that you might have the opportunity to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. So as those elements pass by you, you think about that. As you see the bread, as you see the, the grape juice go by, think that the one who gave himself for this world gave himself for you even when you were an enemy of God and in unbelief. But you see, that temporary reconciliation comes to an end because there is a day of judgment coming. When the judgment comes, there will be no excuse. And we'll stand before a holy God and we'll be cast into the lake of fire if we have not believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. When we're partaking of communion, there's an opportunity there for us as believers to see what Christ has done for us and that we now can rejoice that we have permanently been reconciled throughout all eternity, permanently redeemed, permanently propitiated. And if it's an unbeliever, you can think about the fact that even while you're a sinner, while you're ungodly, while you're an unbeliever, that Christ has done something for you in his death. And those two little words, for you, are very, very important. Think about it this morning as it comes by. The third point, communion indicates Christ's inauguration of the new covenant. In Luke chapter 22, verse 20, he says when he takes the cup, likewise the cup after they had eaten he, and said this, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. The new covenant. The new covenant is in Jeremiah chapter 31. The New Covenant talks about God removing a stony, dead heart and replacing it with a living heart of flesh. The New Covenant in Ezekiel 36 talks about God renewing us internally, giving us His Spirit to dwell within us and giving us a new spirit, a new mind, a new heart. This is the New Covenant. When Jesus died on the cross of Calvary, he shed his blood as our sacrifice, but that sacrifice also initiated the new covenant. And in that new covenant, we have life. We have the forgiveness of sins. Now, a covenant is something very special. There are very few covenants mentioned in Scripture, but the covenants all involve one specific thing. They all involve a God who desires a relationship with his people. 
the testimony of every covenant of Scripture is that He is our God and we are His people. So this cup of His blood, representing His blood, the blood of the new covenant, is a testimony telling us that He is our God and we are His people. We are covenanted to Him. And in every covenant in Scripture, there's not only the establishing of a relationship, but there's also a list of obligations in that relationship. The commandments that He gives. The commandments of the New Covenant are revealed in the New Testament. And many of them sound like this, forgive one another, encourage one another, love one another, build up one another, pray for one another. Recognize the one another's? That's part of what is involved in a covenant relationship because we become a covenant community. In the new covenant, we are covenanted to Christ and we're covenanted to one another as the people of God to live as the people of God. And part of living as the people of God is that we have a relationship to one another. Remember, Jesus said all the commandments are summarized in two. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your being. And love your neighbor as yourself. Love your fellow human being as yourself. And that becomes even stronger within the church as the body of Christ. The brothers and sisters in Christ are to love one another. They are to care for one another. They are to serve one another. This is what we're about. We are covenanted. And so that then brings us to the fourth point here under the full program of redemption. Not only does communion require Christ's incarnation, not only does it demand Christ's substitutionary sacrifice, and not only does it indicate the inauguration of the new covenant, Fourthly, it identifies every believer as being united to the body of Christ, the church. When we partake of the Lord's table together, we're not doing it in our homes. We're not doing it separately. We're not doing it isolated. We're not taking the elements up to some hilltop somewhere nearby on a Sunday morning or any day and observing it alone. We observe it together as a body of believers who are covenanted together to Serve Christ in the new covenant relationship. It is a family affair. This is a family meal. This is one in which we care for one another. Remember when Paul writes here, he says something about that. Because he begins at verse 23 of 1 Corinthians chapter 12 with astounding words. He says... Uh, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, excuse me, verse 17. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you. Whoa, wait a minute. What's happening here? He is letting us know that when we ignore one another and when we fail to have right relationships to one another, we don't deserve commendation. He says, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. How can we observe the Lord's table if there are divisions? 
How can we observe the Lord's table if the peace between us is broken? How can we observe the Lord's table if there's hate instead of love for one another? How can we observe the Lord's table when we neglect one another? How can we observe the Lord's table when we're not taking the time to encourage one another, to love one another, to forgive one another when someone offends us? You see, Paul said, look, I, I have nothing to commend you about, Corinth, because when you come together as a church, as you should, to observe the Lord's table, as you should, you're breaking the new covenant relationship between yourselves. You're not living the way Christ desires and intended for you to live. Look back at chapter 10 for a second there. Chapter 10 of 1 Corinthians, verses 16 and 17. Paul is also talking there about the Lord's table. He's contrasting it to the table of demons. And he said, you shouldn't have any part with demons. You should not have any part with idolatry. So you should not drink the cup of demons and also the cup of the Lord's table or eat the bread for demons and worship of idols and eat the bread of the Lord's table. Notice what he says in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 16. Is not the cup of blessing which we bless a sharing in the blood of Christ? Is not the bread which we break a sharing in the body of Christ? But keep reading. Verse 17. Since there is one bread, we who are many are one body. For we all partake of the one bread. That bread we partake of this morning not only symbolizes the physical body of Christ given in sacrifice on Calvary for us, it also symbolizes the spiritual body of Christ, the church, which we are. So when we partake of it, we're not only recognizing what Christ has done for us in his redemptive work, we're recognizing that we are one in Christ together and that we are one body together and we ought to live as one in harmony and in peace and love. That's part of the Lord's table. We can't ignore 1 Corinthians 10, 16, and 17 and focus only on chapter 11, verses 23 through uh, 28. We have to also read chapter 11, verses 29 to 34, which talks about further this judgment because of their lack of concern for one another. And notice what comes next in chapter 12, spiritual gifts. Why? Because we are to use our gifts for one another. We are given spiritual gifts to use in the body of Christ. So chapter 12 and following gets into that whole topic. It's all involved. If we observe the Lord's table and are not busy serving one another using the gifts we've been given, then we are failing to observe the Lord's table correctly. Communion demands that we live for one another. That's the final point there. Communion demands that we live for one another. You know, Balthazar Hubmeyer, once he was firmly established in an evangelical church as pastor, began to think, how can I take the Scripture's teaching about the Lord's table of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and 1 Corinthians, how can I take that and observe it best in the church that would help 
everyone to understand what it means and why it's so important. And he devised basically the same pattern that you and I follow every month here at Placerita Bible Church. We have the preaching of the word. We have the passing of the elements as we'll have here in a little bit. And we partake together. But there was one thing that he did that we rarely do and that I've never been at a church that does. But he advised it because he said this is important and significant. If we're to live for one another, if we are represented in that one bread as well as the body of Christ physically, but the body of Christ spiritually, then we need to recognize our responsibilities and obligations to one another. So after the closing prayer by the one who was leading communion, he would stand there and instruct the congregation out of Matthew chapter 18. He would explain to them what church discipline is all about and why it must be practiced. And to remind the people that they are obligated in their new covenant relationship to one another to serve one another, to minister to one another, to forgive one another. And if we see a brother or sister sin or they offend us, we are to go to them in accord with Matthew chapter 18. And we're to seek to be reconciled and we're to seek to make things right. And the person who has sinned against us, we are to forgive. And if we will do that, then we have properly come together. That means that when we come together, it's not going to be, well, I'm going to get in there and get my food because he's going to eat all the rest, you know. Remember how this, this whole thing started? It started at the Last Supper. And if you read Luke's gospel very carefully as we read it this morning in chapter 22, there are two things you'll note. Number one, Luke began by describing how Jesus distributed the wine to all the disciples first at the beginning of the Last Supper, the Passover meal. Then they had the Passover meal. And then after the meal, he then took the cup and he took the bread. And once he'd taken the bread, they sang a hymn and they left. They went out to the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus would pray and sweat great drops of blood. And then he would be arrested and he would be taken off to be beaten and eventually crucified. There was a meal there. But what happened in that meal? There was one among them who was a betrayer, who would betray Jesus Christ. In the last portion of Luke chapter 22, we read this morning, it talks about that. Why does it talk about that there? For the same reason Paul talks about it in the verses after the Lord's table in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. We must learn to live with one another and we must learn how to forgive one another because there are some who will betray the faith even who are here today. What kind of example are we living for them? And what kind of example is it for those who would deny Christ? A reminder once again, baptism symbolizes our commitment of faith. The Lord's Supper symbolizes our obligation to brotherly love and to the one another's. Or baptism is our Godward obedience. The Lord's Supper is our brotherward obedience. Let's look now at the future kingdom 
and Christ's institution of communion. There are three passages in the three Gospels. In Matthew 26, 29, Mark 14, 25, and Luke chapter 22, verses 16 and 18. And in those passages, Christ says something. This comes up first in Luke, where he does it in the preface to the Lord's table. Where he says in verses 16 and 18, before Jesus ever takes the bread, he tells them, I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. That's in verse 16 of Luke chapter 22. In verse 18, he repeats it. I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. With regard to the bread, with regard to the wine, he says that I will not do it again until the kingdom of God comes. In the Gospels, the other two Gospels, it comes at the end of verse 29 in uh, Matthew, and at the end of verse 25 in Mark, where he says there uh, about the fruit of the vine that he will not drink it again anew or he will drink it again new with you in my Father's kingdom, Matthew says, in the kingdom of God, Mark says. You see, that's a future look. You look for that in 1 Corinthians 11 and you don't find it. No mention of the kingdom of God in 1 Corinthians 11, but we do have this. That when you get to the end of the service, it says, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death, what? Until he comes. You see, when we take the Lord's table this morning, when we talk about the full program of redemption, it even includes his return. It includes his second coming. You see, when we partake of the Lord's table as a body of believers, what are we saying? Number one, I believe that Jesus Christ came and was born of the Virgin Mary, took upon himself human flesh, was a perfect man, was without sin. He died as a perfect sacrifice for my sins on the cross of Calvary. He rose again the third day according to the scriptures, and he went into heaven, and he's going to return one day. And when he returns, he's going to establish his kingdom. That's why we pray the Lord's Prayer when we say, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. It has not come yet. He has not returned yet. Luke 19 talks about he has gone into a far country, into heaven to receive the kingdom and will return with it. He is yet to return. And when he returns, those of us who are believers are going to sit with him and observe the Lord's table together just like he did with his disciples in the upper room. Physically, being bodily present. You say, but wait a minute. What about all of those of us who may be dead by then? <laughs> Remember when Christ comes, we're told, what does he do? He brings with him those who are dead in him. Those believers who have died before, he brings with him. And for those who are alive when he comes, he calls forth. They're immediately transformed, and they are with him. And we enter the kingdom together, and in that kingdom, one of the things that will be done is we will eat together with him. He will drink that cup. He will eat that bread again anew in the kingdom of God together with us. That's what he promised. So you see the coming second advent of Jesus is the focal point of the Lord's table as well. And the coming kingdom of Christ on earth is there. And lastly under this point, 
What does that mean? If we are going to be observing it together with him, and notice he's promising it to his disciples as well, who were there, and they're long dead, nearly 2,000 years ago. They will also observe it. What does that require? That requires our resurrection and receiving of our glorified bodies to be there to observe that with him. That's our hope. That's the promise of our future. We're included in that future. When we partake of the Lord's table, we're not only doing it until He comes, but with the realization that when He comes, we will then sit with Him and partake in the same observance together with Him. That is part of our hope. We will share that. If you've ever gone to Jerusalem and ever went to where they think the upper room was and you stood there like we did and wondered, boy, what would it have been like to be there with Jesus that last supper and, and, and to know what's happening next. He's going out to the Garden of Gethsemane where you'll pray and, and eventually be arrested and then taken and beaten and then crucified. We, 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 our minds cannot comprehend it. And our hearts cry out, oh, if I could have only have been here. If I, could, if I could have been there at that Passover meal with Jesus, oh, what a wonderful thing that would be. To listen to him give his upper room discourses in John chapters 14, 15, 16, and 17. To hear the high priestly prayer he prays in John chapter 7. What a glorious thing. We will be there, beloved. And when we observe the Lord's table, the promise of our being there when he returns in his kingdom is there as well. It's part of what he himself personally established as part of this observance that he told his disciples to observe. Your hope is in this table as well. It is symbolized. So let's conclude now. As we come down to that third and final point, the multiple messages of the communion, what is communion all about then? Well, it's about all the things we mentioned before. You see, the focus is on our Savior. After all, he said, do this in remembrance of me. That's explicit there in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 24. Do this in remembrance of me. We are focused on Christ today as we partake the Lord's Supper. Secondly, we realize that there's been a fulfillment of prophetic revelation because Luke in chapter 22 pointed out that the Son of Man is going as it has been determined. In other words, this is the plan of God. It's a fulfillment of prophecy that the Son of God would come, take upon himself human flesh and would die as a sacrifice for sin and would leave us and then would be resurrected and then would ascend into heaven and one day will return. This is all part of God's program. It's a fulfillment of prophetic revelation. And third, it reminds us that our sins have been forgiven. Luke said that so clearly, but, so, but especially so Matthew in chapter 26, verse 20, uh, 28, where he said, Jesus said, here's Matthew recording what Jesus said, you might say, well, wait a minute, why do each gospel have a different thing about what Jesus said? Well, each one was given the freedom of writing down what they remembered and what the Spirit brought to their memory as they wrote. They were writing to different groups of people, too. Matthew is writing to Jewish people primarily. 
Mark was writing to those who were Romans, those who were slaves. Luke was writing to those who were Greeks. John is writing primarily to the church and to believers, writing much later. So the Spirit has them write different parts of what Jesus said. Jesus said all the things, when we put them all together, parallel columns of all the different things the Gospel of Matthew, Mark, and Luke say, all of those things occurred. It was the choice of the writer through the direction of the Holy Spirit of what they included. Matthew focused on this, for, that his blood is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. So as we observe the Lord's table, praise God your sins are forgiven. If you believe in Jesus Christ, that he came and he died on the cross for your sins and rose again the third day according to the scriptures, your sins have been forgiven. Rejoice in that as you take the cup. Fourth, the future glory, our hope. Let's not ignore that. The instruction is very clear until he comes. And his instruction is very clear I will eat it again with you in the kingdom. It is repeated five times in the Gospels. Every Gospel writer got that point and focused on that. That is part of what we're observing here. And lastly, there must be a focus on our union with the body of Christ, the church. We're partaking together. May I say this? As the elements come to you, we, son, we tend sometimes to take the element, to hold it, to bow our head, and we focus. Too often we do this. We focus only on Christ. We treat it as a private time of devotion to Christ. It's just me and my Lord, the rest of you butt out. Okay? That's our attitude often when we come to the Lord's table. That's exactly what Jesus, it's exactly what Paul said it ought not to be. Paul told the Corinth church, you did not observe it correctly because you have divisions. You did not observe it correctly because you didn't observe those who were weak in your midst. You didn't observe those who were in need in your midst. As we're partaking, yes, focus on Christ, but also focus on this. What would Christ have me to be in this body of believers? How would Christ have me to live with my brother and sister in Christ? What is my relationship like with them? Am I honoring my Savior? Am I honoring Christ? Am I glorifying Him in the way I'm behaving? That has to be also part of the Lord's table. Without it, we're not observing it biblically. In conclusion, just two points. The Lord's table presents the full redemptive work of Christ, past, present, and future. This is like a small theology altogether in one brief memorial meal with Christ as the center. Secondly, and lastly here, the Lord's table calls us to live in unity with one another and to exercise our spiritual gifts for 
one another. Without that, we again are not observing the Lord's table correctly. It's an important time in a community of believers. It's a time when we're renewing our relationship to our Lord and what he's done and our relationship to one another because of what our Lord has done. We are one body. Are we living like it? Think about that as we come. Let's bow in prayer. Father, we thank you and praise you for your word. Sometimes as we approach your word, uh, we're deeply convicted of our own sin, our own lack, our own failures. We're also deeply impressed and amazed at your amazing love for us, that you would send your son to die for us, that you would have him come and offer that perfect body upon the cross of Calvary as our substitutionary sacrifice, that he would pay the penalty for our sins, that we might have forgiveness of sins. He was made to be sin for us that we might be able to have his righteousness, which is the only righteousness by which you would allow us into your heaven. Father, we've not paid a price like Balthazar Hubmeyer, who believed these things and lived these things to his peril in the far first part of the Reformation. And as we're in this 500th anniversary year of Luther's thesis on the Wittenberg door, we're reminded of the price, the penalty so many of the reformers paid to believe that it's the scriptures alone and Christ alone by faith alone. Help us as we're together now observing your table today to observe it the way you've instructed us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.